Thank you, Dan. That hymn has become a favorite, hasn't it? Wow. It is what we depend upon. It's not our faithfulness to Him that holds us. It's Christ Himself. It's His own faithfulness. I love what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3. I press on, forgetting what lies behind, and I lay hold of that for which I've been laid hold of by Christ. We have been laid hold of by the Lord Jesus, and so now we press on in His love and His mercy, for He indeed will hold us fast. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. So many things we learn from these letters that were given to the churches. I mean, uh, we could discuss whether or not these are future or past or whether these were actual churches. I mean, all the arguments go on and on as we talked about weeks and weeks ago. But one thing's for sure, when you read these letters, so many lessons come to the surface for every day in our lives, for believers. We learn so much about the Lord Jesus Christ and His love for His church and the instruction that He gives to His people. We learn things about ourselves. We, we are called to account for the things that we need to think carefully about. We're even admonished to repent of things that will get us in serious trouble, and we're even seeing in these letters some serious warnings about consequences to come if they do not turn to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith and faithfulness. It is no different here in the message to the church at Thyatira, and I must confess that I had planned to do this in two messages, but now it has become a third for next time. Because the more I get to this middle section, the more I, I see these lessons for the life of the believer rising to the surface, and we just cannot skip over them. You remember that in the, the letter to the church at Thyatira, the big problem here in this church, which was sort of a little town in that, that little mountainous canal area, that area that came down through the canyon and and sort of was a buttress or really a, a, a protective wall before you got to Pergamum. So in that Asia Minor area, it wasn't really a large town, but, but it was an industrious town. They had a problem in the church there, and the church, while it had some faithful families in it, which no doubt contributed to any strength of influence it might have had, they had one major Achilles heel. They began, many of them in the church, particularly the leadership, to wink at Sin. Blatant sin was going on in the church, and for the sake of relationships and cultural savvy and acceptability, you remember last time we said they, they were beginning to wink at blatant sin. The leadership, perhaps even this messenger who delivered the message from the Lord himself through the Apostle John, was involved in this compromise. And you remember this letter opened up with the title of the Son of God. Jesus wanted them to know, I am the Son of God and I have authority, eyes like a flame of fire, I have feet like burnished bronze. This spoke of his judicious authority, his strength, his power, and his clarity about what's really going on in the church. There's nothing he doesn't see. And he mentions that up front in this letter because he is saying the Son looks for purity in his church. And we saw last time this church stopped doing church discipline. They stopped protecting the purity of the church. They stopped 
calling out sin both privately and then to the church when someone needed to be called at that level. They stopped seeking to restore sinning brothers and sisters, but they didn't put them out of the church at all. They didn't say anything to them. They just let it go on. This is no doubt a pragmatic church of massive proportions, and behind it all was some false teaching coming from this woman who was leading a bunch of them into blatant wickedness, and then some others who were holdovers from the teaching of the Nicolaitans, which, if you remember, was likely sort of a free grace movement within the church, sort of an antinomian movement, which is a fancy word that means we don't have anything to do with the law of God, therefore no rules, no standards, we just sort of give ourselves over to some sense of Jesus, and, and that's how we live. No commands to obey, no striving for holiness. That was a Nicolaitan movement, most likely. And that was in the church. You combine the Nicolaitans' teaching and Jezebel, this woman who was leading God's people to these festival ceremonies under these, these unions in the industrial area of the town, and you had a serious problem because there was ritual idolatry, ritual immorality going on in those festival meetings that were part of these economic groups. And if you were a church member, you had, to, you had a job with those guilds or those unions, you had to go into those festivals, and some were participating in the false worship and the immorality, and the Nicolaitans were coming along and saying, it's no big deal, it's not on your conscience, don't worry about it, you're free. And so you had cultural, you had compromise with the culture, you had pragmatism, you had antinomianism, free grace, sort of hyper grace movements, and then you had this despicable leadership from this woman, and she was leading God's people astray and committing acts of immorality and eating things sacrificed to idols. They were violating their conscience. They were violating their moral life. There was defilement, and the leaders said nothing. Some good families in the church striving. You remember we saw that last time, the strength of body life, which was vibrant in some families. Verse 19, Jesus said, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than the first. What did we note here? The very thing that we celebrate in a senior saint who's gone the distance, such as Don and Noreen Geezer, whom you saw singing earlier. I mean, just there were commendable things in this church that represent that kind of service. A commendable love for each other, unlike Ephesus, you remember. They had a commendable faith. There were some families that served in the ministry of the service and really came around one another. And then you had this perseverance. They were, they were endurers. They could come under it. They were, they were tough, some of these families. Jesus commends them for it. But it doesn't really matter how commendable your love and your faith and your service and your perseverance. You could have a church that is blown and going with programs and outreach and all kinds of things that are visible and ecclesia conference and courageous churchmen and women's conferences and Bible studies. And we, we talk about that all the time. You can have an ant farm for ministry going on, but if you have sin in the camp that the church is ignoring... The Son of God is watching, and He warns. Verse 20, I have this against you. You remember we saw this last time, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, 
who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my slaves astray. She's teaching them to commit these acts of immorality, and she's teaching them to eat things sacrificed to idols and leads them in it. Why? What? How? By example. She does it. Just like Jezebel of old in Israel, who actually didn't just lead Israel into the worship of Baal, but actually committed the same acts of immorality and still bowed down to Baal. Similar here now in the church of Thyatira. You have a woman who I believe is an actual woman in the church, and, and likely the Lord Jesus Christ is not merely naming her Jezebel here. Likely that is the name she's using because there was this sense in the church that if you were in those festivals and you were communing with the gods and you were spiritual in it, then your acts of immorality just lifted you to some sort of height. And you note later, they called those things the deep things of Satan, verse 24. Wow, the woman is willing to take the name Jezebel even though it has a sordid history and she's willing to set herself up as one who teaches and leads God's people into immorality and things of false worship. And she even has the boldness in the church to say, yes, these are the deep things. The deep things of Satan. As if that's some positive thing. You tolerate her. You live peaceably with her, is the verb there. She's self-named a prophetess. She's teaching error. She's leading vulnerable saints into these things. And notice her stubbornness, verse 21. And I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. And here we begin to unfold more of this letter, and lessons begin to come out all over the place for us. Notice here, she does not desire she does not want to repent. It's literally the term for she does not desire to change her convictions. She does not desire it. She won't turn from her behavior and conduct of both leading others astray and engaging in it. Now the first thing we note here under her stubbornness is the astounding grace of God in this. His sheep are being led into sin. And the text says, I gave her time to repent. Beloved, this is shocking patience. We just can't relate to this. Jesus gave her time. It indicates that God had given clear warnings of some extent before this. I gave her time. The term is, uh, is a term in the New Testament that, that has some force to it of, of a duration I gave her time. There must have been some warnings that came prior to this letter. This letter is kind of like God's final, listen, I'm putting an exclamation point on my warnings. But prior to this, God had asked. God had called. God had warned. God had come alongside. What must have that have been like? The patience of God in warning this church about the evil of sexual sin and idolatry which spawns it. Somehow the Lord had brought warnings before and the church didn't listen. Wow, there's a, there's a bit of a warning to us. How many ways as a church has the Lord come alongside to challenge us to uphold the truth 
in a culture that is pounding against us to get rid of it, and an evangelical culture that comes against us saying that we are narrow and, and we're only interested in, in some sort of narrow, harsh standard that isn't biblical, so they say. And yet, how many times has the Lord brought warnings? Or let's take it to the individual level. How many times has the Lord brought warnings to you about some area of your life? How many ways has the Lord put a discipler in front of you, a pastor in front of you, a caution? How long-suffering is the Lord? How kind and gracious. You ever been in a stubborn season of sin and you know it, it's on your conscience, you've been silencing your conscience, you've been settling it down, shoving it aside, and warning after kind warning comes. And it's as Paul told the church at Rome, it is the kindness of the Lord that should lead you to repentance. And he says to the Jewish Christians at Rome, you're stubborn. Because you think God's going to be lenient on you because you have the law of God and you're somehow special because you're God's covenant people chosen as a nation through which the Messiah would come. You think that gives you some leniency on God's part. But listen, you know the law of God, but you violate the law of God. Romans 2, 17. He says, do you say, do not steal, and yet do you steal? I mean, they knew the law of God and they were doing the very thing. And what does the Lord do? He patiently comes alongside and says, look, I'm bringing you kindness after kindness after kindness because I want that to lead you to softness. The statement in verse 21 is shocking. Jesus says, I gave her time. That must have come with warnings about God's judicial hardening. Hey, God could give you over. Anybody ever said that to you when you're in a season where you're distant from the church and you're in sin, you know it, and you don't want to deal with it? And someone comes alongside and says, look, I'm cautioning you that God could harden you as a judgment on you, a chastening, a judicious act by which he lets you have enough sin to really make it painful and a bad taste in your mouth with lots of scars. There must have been warnings like that to this church. There must have been warnings about the condemnation upon the third and fourth generation because you're going to see in a little bit that Jesus brings a warning very serious about those that are coming up in the ranks. There must have even been warnings about how idolatry and immorality defile the mind and the conscience. So says Titus 1.15. It'll lead you to blindness. And upon giving some of the warnings, God allowed time. That's a word for lengthy span. The long-suffering and patience of God is absolutely amazing. Enough time to be softened. Enough time to have your ears unplugged. Enough time to have your heart brought low. Enough time for the Holy Spirit to bring a variety of convictions. Beloved, this is just like our God. This is like Him. You've seen friends reject for years and yet still God sends you again or another set of messengers of the light of the gospel. And I love it because the world says, oh, you Christians are always saying Jesus is going to come back. You could not fool us. Everything just goes on like it's always gone on. What a bunch of fools you are. And yet we turn to 2 Peter 3 verse 9 and say, oh, the Lord is not slow about his promise. Know this, when judgment falls, that will be it. 
And when it falls, we will go into an eternity, many of which will have a Christless eternity. Think about it. Eternity without Christ. Oh, the Lord is not slow about his promise. But what does Peter say? Oh, as you count slowness, you you have missed the concept. But God is long-suffering toward you. He's long-suffering toward you. Who's the you there that Peter's talking about? Those who are mockers. He's long-suffering toward the mockers. Because he does not wish for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. God is a saving God, and so therefore he's a long-suffering God. How long does he suffer? Well, his return and final judgment hasn't happened yet. It hasn't happened yet. Despite the generations of God-haters that come and go, living lives in utter offense to God's holiness, yet the Lord's promise of coming in his glory to judge the world waits, still waits. He will come as he's promised. He will. And the deep caverns of judgment will open up and all of that judgment will come forth and it will be profound, frightening, and eternal. But for now, the oceanic currents of his mercy flow over those caverns globally. And his mercy overrides his coming wrath. Verse 21 is shocking. She does not wish to repent. The verb here takes the force of something that refuses over time. At every time there was a warning, she refused to repent. At every time there came a kindness, she stiff-armed it. No matter how many ways God graciously called her to turn from these sins, the sins of teaching what was intended to seduce Christians into false worship, the teaching that was intended to draw them into immorality which would destroy their lives, Every time a warning came from God graciously, she ongoingly had no interest in turning from these things. She was resolute in it. You ever met somebody like that? You warn them, you reach your hand out to them, and they just stiff, stiff necked resist. In 2 Chronicles 36, verse 11, Zedekiah, it says, was 21 years old when he became king and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. 21-year-old king of Israel. And verse 12 of 2 Chronicles 36 says, he did evil in the sight of the Lord his God and he did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke for the Lord. 21-year-old did not humble himself. Hmm, shocker. (laughs) That was no shot across the bow. (laughs) That was a torpedo, sorry. (laughs) Verse Verse 13, he also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, listen to this, who made him swear allegiance by God, and he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord God of Israel. Furthermore... All the officials of the priests and the people were very unfaithful following all the abominations of the nations. And they defiled the house of the Lord 
which he sanctified in Jerusalem. And the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, until there was no remedy. There was no remedy eventually. That's what Jesus is warning of here. It's like Proverbs 6, verses 12 to 15. The first time I read it as a young Christian, I was just absolutely stunned at this statement. Proverbs 6, verse 12, a worthless person, a wicked man, is the one who walks with a false mouth, who winks with his eyes, verse 13, signals with his feet, points with his fingers. That is to say, he he doesn't have integrity. Everything's about evil and covering it up with winks and, and gestures, hiddenness. Who with perversity in his heart devises evil continually, and he spreads strife. And this is what the text says in verse 15. Therefore, his calamity will come suddenly Instantly he will be broken and there will be no remedy. Here in Revelation, Jezebel stiffened her neck. And so, verse 22, Jesus says, Behold, watch this, in other words. Grab a hold of this. Listen up to this. I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. The first thing you notice here, he's going to throw her upon a bed. Sickness is supplied by the Bible translators. It could possibly be a a bed of illness or disease. But as I said to you last time, it is most likely merely a reference to the tribulational judgments until she and the church are completely wiped out if people don't repent. And her stubborn following, notice, those who commit adultery with her He will cast them into great tribulation, probably just a synonymic idea for what's just been said to her. You want to be in bed in your idolatries and your immoralities? I'll put you on a bed, all right. You'll, You'll have a bed of tribulation you'll never get out of, and those who follow you in it, it will be great tribulation. And notice, unless they repent of her deeds, here's another lesson for us as we think about this letter. She is the one held responsible for leading vulnerable people into enslavement. You say, well, aren't the followers guilty? Yes, the followers are under the warning, and it says if they harden their hearts, they will suffer great tribulation. Thlipsis is that that great word that is used all over this book to speak of a time of tremendous terror. Profoundly devastating terrors and horrors will befall those people and it will result in physical trauma and emotional trauma this side of the barrier of death and when they are destroyed in indignities and die that horrible death, then they go into a Christless eternity. This is absolutely devastating and as we study the book of Revelation, we'll see that. But they're, though they're responsible the leaders are viewed as ultimately guilty of something far greater. 
unless they repent of her deeds. Notice verse 23, and I will kill her children with pestilence, or literally death. This is a reference to all those in the church presently, and perhaps the next generation belonging to those families, who are running after the same doctrine of this license to commit immorality in the name of worship. This is a reference to the younger ones coming up, the ones to whom the baton will be passed for ministry. They're coming up in the church, and they're already beginning to take Jezebel's sinful practices to another level of wickedness. And Jesus says, you you must repent. If you don't repent, you're going to die a horrible death and then meet a Christless eternity yourselves. I will kill her children with this same fate. Perhaps this is the judgment that unfolded in chapter 6 with the fourth seal being broken and opened up. Chapter 6, notice in verse 6 and 7. Uh, 7 and 8 rather. Chapter 6, verse 7 and 8. When the Lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come. And I looked, and behold, an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name Death, and Hades was following with him. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence, there it is, or death, and by the wild beasts of the earth. That is a reference to horrible deaths with indignity. No proper ceremony, no Christian burial, just like Jezebel of old when the dogs ate her in the street. Perhaps this was the judgment on the church at Thyatira for those who did not repent. So it illustrates for us that though God is long-suffering, He will come in judgment. It's His kindness that's to lead us to repentance, but He will harden. And if you do not respond, there are consequences of the severest nature. And if you're the one who has led someone into apostasy, the judgment upon you will be far greater. How much more severe God is upon those Listen, who use their influence to lead others into slavery to sin. Beloved, it absolutely grieves me what evangelicalism has become. We we elevate the most popular whatever, whether or not they have sound doctrine at all points or whether or not they're confusing the sheep, we just are enamored with drinking at the fountain of popularity and bigness and, and we don't want to be narrow and we don't want to be called names and we don't want to be standing alone. We just love to come to the fountain of whatever's most popular and we do not ask ourselves, are these leaders leading us into some error that will eventually enslave the next generation and for which they will be held doubly responsible. You remember the Lord's words in Matthew 18, verse 6. Whoever, Jesus said, whoever causes one of these little ones of mine, these little disciples, whoever causes one of these to stumble, Whoever drags someone away from the truth, whoever drags someone into an experience, the world that can destroy them, 
Whoever loves to take people and, and flirt with those things that will enslave and then sees someone become enslaved and then takes their hand off and says, oh, I had nothing to do with that. Jesus said, whoever takes one of these little ones of mine and causes them to stumble when they've believed in me, it is better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck and that he be drowned in the depth of the sea. This woman and the leaders who tolerated her are under severe warning. Patient God though we have. They are under severe warning. And God grieves and hates it and loathes it when his children are led astray by someone who's reckless, careless, unbelieving, or sinister. And it's a, it's a caution, a warning to us. You don't want to live in such a way that knowingly or unrepentantly leads someone into error that will enslave them. And it seems like in evangelicalism it goes on all the time and we just excuse it. We don't call these leaders to account. We, we watch the devastation and then we all say, oh, you know what's really great? That person will now understand man's real plight and they'll be able to have greater compassion because they got involved in that wickedness. And a year later, they rise up in some ministry and we all say, well, you know, they can still be useful. We don't know if they're repentant because that isn't the fruit of it. If you were leading God's people, the scriptures say, and you were not beyond reproach, and you led someone into enslavement to false doctrine, or you led someone into enslavement into those things that defile the conscience and the mind, immoralities, you led them there and taught on it while you were leading them there. And you can't turn around in a year and lead God's people. God hates that. He absolutely hates it. In 2 Peter chapter 2, you see the strong language that the Bible uses for those that do such things. Verse 1, false prophets also arose among the people, 2 Peter 2 verse 1, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies. That's error. That's what Jezebel was doing. Even denying the master who bought them, they pretend to know Jesus. They name his name. They claim salvation. He died and offered salvation, and they, they made some profession to have owned it, taken it in. And now they're denying it and bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Look at verse 2. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Verse 12, they're called unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed. They revile where they have no knowledge. And they suffer wrong as the wages of doing wrong, verse 13. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. Stains and blemishes reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you. He's talking to believers. 
And they carouse with you. Look at verse 14. Their eyes are full of adultery. They never cease from sin. Enticing, unstable souls. That's what they do. They go to the vulnerable and the unstable and they entice them and they have a heart trained in greed. They're accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they've gone astray having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of righteousness. We, we saw that earlier in the church of Pergamum. Springs without water, verse 17. Arrogant, verse 18. Promising freedom, verse 19, while they themselves are slaves of corruption. You know what we do with people who do that? We say, oh, you know, they, they need to be useful somewhere. We should not do that. I don't know half the time whether these people know the Lord or not. I don't know. But I don't know how in the world you can go that long teaching someone to be enslaved while you yourself pretend to be righteous and then you spin into the headlines and then what? You're back in ministry a year later? This is what we do all the time in evangelicalism. Beloved, this cannot be. These letters to the churches warn the church not to do that. We do not tolerate this kind of thing because that is where the leaven comes in and this is what destroys effective ministry, let alone vulnerable sheep. And every Christian, I'm talking true believers, you can bring heavy chastening upon yourself when you treat the Word of God casually and then you treat the pursuit of holiness as an option and then others who are vulnerable are caused to stumble in their desires and in their conduct and are led into sin, eventually themselves becoming enslaved. And you walk away from that casually? This is a warning to believers as much as it is a warning to hardened unbelievers like Jezebel. God takes that kind of thing very seriously. Even Peter himself said in 1 Peter 2.16, hey, don't use your liberty in Christ as a covering for what you really want to do, and that's sin and lead other people into sin. Don't do that. Don't cheat people out of Christ for your own gratification while you live in the pretense of those things? Don't do that. This letter to us is a warning. I don't know what your context is. I know what mine is. This is a warning to us as a church. We do not want to ignore the kindness of the Lord. Don't let what is for you a a free good thing in Christ to be evil spoken of. Don't turn it into something that destroys people. Notice in verse 22, back in in Revelation chapter 2. Notice verse 22, that repentance is the way to forgiveness and escape from judgment. I love this. It is repentance unless they repent of their deeds. That's what he says. Repent of your deeds. Repent of these sinful things. Turn from them. That is always how it's been. You want to know if somebody's actually changed? Look for repentance. Here's another lesson from this letter. It's always about repentance. 
This has always been the case with God. He only accepts real, heartfelt, broken, and lowly sorrow over who you are before a holy and righteous God and about the offense that you've caused with your life and how you only deserve judgment and now you're crying out for his mercy. That is repentance. And the fruit of it is I turn from that old stuff and I run from it as fast and as hard as I can. That's repentance. That's another reason evangelicalism is, is so weak. We have treated repentance in a shallow way. We let these guys go flying off into another ministry to enslave young, vulnerable people with, with their errors and their, their living, their licentious living. And then we say, oh, they're repentant. How dare we? That's not repentance. God defines repentance. In fact, you see here, you see here that we go from where we've been in this text to now the fact that the deeds of all reveal the hearts of all. The deeds of all reveal the hearts of all. Middle of verse 23. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. We could say it another way. This is the Lord Jesus Christ saying, I search out the thoughts and intentions of every person and I'm going to give to each of you whatever you deserve from that. This is a striking statement. Literally, according to your works. It's a striking statement for those of us who know Jesus Christ because we know that we are forgiven. We know we have the inheritance. We are heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. When we see Christ, we're going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. But there are also warnings in Scripture about those moments. Warnings that tell us that when you do meet the Lord, you're going to stand before His judgment seat. I want to just take a moment on this final insight here from this letter. It says here that the Lord Jesus Christ searches the minds and hearts and he will give to each one of you according to your deeds. Each one of you according to your deeds. Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, that you will, all of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. That's right. Do you think about that moment? You're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And it is a judgment seat. It is the old concept of the Bema. And there he will sit, the Lord of the universe, Jesus Christ himself, where every knee will bow, whether as a worshiper or someone who's judged. And we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And as believers, this is, this is a moment for believers to be before their Lord and 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10 says, each one will be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he's done, whether good or bad. That's, that's the same thing being t- spoken here by the Lord in Revelation 2.23. According to what you've done, whether good or bad, when you stand before Christ, you will be recompensed. You will receive what you deserve for what has happened in your life. Romans 14.10, Paul said, 
Why do you judge your brother, or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. You don't stand over somebody because there's coming a day when you will stand before God. And John chapter 5 is, is even more striking because it talks about that day when the Lord Jesus Christ speaks and all people come out of the tombs. Everyone comes out. Do not marvel at this, he said, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs shall hear his voice and shall come forth, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Hmm. Interesting. Deeds. All throughout Revelation you see this theme over and over again. Deeds, deeds, deeds. God is watching our deeds. And notice verse 23, he searches the mind and the heart. So now we're getting a clue. It is deeds that are rooted in what is in your heart and in your mind. So it begins in the inner man and manifests itself in deeds. And and mark it, the assumption is that what is on the outside is a sign of what is on the inside. You can fake it for only so long. Eventually, a bad root will manifest bad fruit. Eventually. That assumption is here. It's interesting that in 1 Corinthians 3.13, when it talks about this day when we will be before the Lord, it says each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it. It is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. There it is. Be careful how you work and labor in the Lord's vineyard and on his building, his construction project, because each man's work will be assessed. There's that same concept. And again, you see it in Romans chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Because of your stubbornness, Israel, and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. There is a day. It is a day of wrath. It is a day of revelation of the righteous judgment of God. It will fall. It is righteous. It is certain. It cannot be stopped. It is coming. And all those who don't know God are storing up for that day the things that will come down on their head. And here's what it says of this great God. He will, he's the God who will render to every man according to his deeds. Deeds are there again. They, he will render them according to his deeds to those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. In other words, they're going to receive eternal life because in their heart of hearts there is this seeking for glory, the glory of God, seeking for the honor of God, seeking for the life after death and the life with Christ. And for them, their deeds will be seen as having persevered in those things and they will receive eternal life. But... To those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, their lot will be wrath and indignation. There it is. That's a statement of fact. God will render to each person according to his deeds. To some who by perseverance in doing good are seeking for His glory, His honor, and life with Him, eternal life, and they will receive it. Why? Because their deeds manifest what they were seeking. It is a disposition of seeking something other than unrighteousness, other than unholiness and disobedience. 
They seek the glory of God. They seek the honor of all that is good and right. They seek the immortality that belongs to those who are given sinlessness. Their sins are forgiven and they're never judged for them. And how do they manifest it? Paul says to the Romans, by perseverance, diligence, persistent pattern of striving for the Lord's honor. No abandoning Christ, no persistent rejection of the truth, no hardening against righteousness, no lifestyle of godless pursuits, none. What's the outcome for them? Eternal life. Why? Because it's been in their heart. It's been in their heart. The outside manifests the inside. The fruit tells you what's the root. And it's interesting, Matthew chapter 12 it says, out of, the ho- out of the heart, the mouth speaks. It's your words that reveal what's in- on the inside. The consistent pattern of your words over time. The consistent things you talk about, think about, live for. What you, what you have on your calendar, what is in your bank account and where you spend it. How you live for other people or how you live for yourself. What you do when no one is around. It manifests what's on the inside. And when you stand before God, your deeds will be displayed. Why? Because your deeds demonstrate what's on the inside, what's been on the inside. Absolutely. God is able to demonstrate by our deeds and the revealing of them. He's able to demonstrate exactly what Revelation 2.23 says, that it is he who searches the minds and the hearts. He searches them. I know what you sometimes think. Hey, if we're, if we're judged by our deeds, how will we ever be saved? I have unrighteous deeds in my life right now. Texts like this cause us some angst because they seem to be teaching that we're saved by our works, which defies all that we know about salvation, particularly Paul's letter to the Romans, etc. It's clear, however, from these texts, as it is from the rest of Scripture, that we are not saved by works, but our works are tested in the end so that the power of God that transformed our heart comes to the surface. So that the power that transformed our desires and our affections demonstrates that there was righteousness in our deeds. There was a pursuit of holy conduct. There was Christ-likeness in the pattern of our life, and we persevered in those things. Why? Because it is the power of Christ that does it. God prepared beforehand that we should walk in these things. That's why he saved us by grace, so that there would be good works. When someone comes along and tells you, look, I don't care about that sin. We tolerate that. No, it's for, for the culture. No, we, we, look, we don't even want to hear that homosexuality is a sin. We don't even want to hear that fornication is a sin. We don't want to hear that, that marriage needs to be just with a man. We don't want to hear about those things, man and a woman. No, no, no. We want to, we want to align ourselves with what is culturally loving. and That stuff's coming out of their mouth because it's revealing what's in the heart and churches that that move in that direction and begin to tolerate sin like that, these are places that are apostatizing and this letter is to call them to repentance. They are headed down that road. They are headed for judgment. They are not partner ministries when they tolerate that kind of stuff and lead people astray. There might be families in there that are good families, but they are to be warned 
Even in our own church, we're to be warned. Because in the end, you will have your deeds brought forth, all of them. And so these letters serve to warn us and make us think. You say, well, how do I take these warnings? Well, it depends on where you're at in your Christian life. It depends on where you're at. Let me just give you some practical aspects. If passages like this warn you in your Christian life, it will hit you depending on where you're at in in your Christian maturity or even whether or not you know the Lord. First of all, if you're a believer and you've had faithfulness through the years and, and you read a warning like this, but you're a strong Christian, you're a faithful Christian, you, you are one of those who has love and faith and ministry and perseverance, and there have been patterns of that in your life. So you're a strong Christian. You might think these warnings aren't really for you, but they are, because warnings for the strong Christian offer a reminder for you to press on all the more, and they give you an abiding confidence that you have obeyed these cautions, and so you can continue in them and still have even a greater assurance and a greater confidence to the end that the power of God has been on display in your life. It bolsters your assurance. You say, well, that's not me, Pastor. I I don't know that I could say that I've had that many years or even that kind of strength in my life. How does this passage hit me? Well, let's say you're weak, but you are willing. Let's say you're weak, but but you, you really are willing. What does this warning do for you? This warning in these letters, particularly this one, provides for you a a very graphic deterrent to future patterns of sin. A very graphic deterrent to future patterns of sin. I mean, listen to the language. I'll throw her on a bed of tribulation and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation. I'll kill her children with pestilence. The next generation, in other words, is going to die a miserable death and head into a Christless eternity. And all the churches will know. This is going to be public. It's going to be an indignity that's public so that all the churches know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. God knows your heart and your mind and he's going to give to you according to your deeds. So if you're weak but you're willing, a warning provides a deterrent to future patterns of sin. On the backside of this warning, there's also for you, if you're weak but you're willing, there is this great display of the specific care of God in pointing out the dangers Isn't it kind of the Lord to point out the dangers? I mean, you should rejoice when someone comes along and says, you know what, I sometimes wonder where you're at spiritually. And you get all bowed up. What? I can't believe that. Questioning my spirituality. They even asked me if I really know the Lord. What? I professed Christ at two. (laughs) I've actually heard that. Sorry, that's not going to fly. But we get all incensed. You ought to actually embrace it because when you're weak but you are willing to allow warnings like this to have their impact, it is a display of the specific care of God in pointing out these dangers. And so then what does it do? Well, here's the third blessing. It engenders a greater dependence upon God. Thank you, Lord. You care for me like that? I want to depend upon you. I don't want to run anywhere else but you. These warnings, what a kindness to us. But you might be a little more stubborn than that. You're weak, but you tend toward the stubborn side. And you know what a warning is? A warning brings instant clarity to why you're being chastened. 
instant clarity to the chastening of your life. I mean, if you're stubborn, if you have a pattern of stubbornness, then some of the discipline of the Lord, some of the paideia of the Lord, Hebrews 12, some of that pressure to increase virtue in your life or warn you is instant clarity to why you have so much trouble getting off the dime with Christ because you are stubborn and he is trying to soften your stiff neck. He's trying to help you so you don't have the trappings of what we have to put on a mule to drag a mule around, Psalm 32 says. Instant clarity to why sometimes you're chastened the way you are. Furthermore, a warning for someone who's weak but stubborn brings greater conviction to the conscience. Absolutely. It starts to sensitize your conscience when you read a letter like this. I hope you come under heavy concern that you walk faithfully. Now you're informing your conscience. And what happens when you inform your conscience with the truth? The Spirit of God goes to work and convicts you of unbelief. Stubbornness is unbelief. And when you're stubborn against the Lord, the Lord is going to bring conviction and, and hopefully your conscience is sensitized to know where those areas of unbelief are in your life and have to be repented of. There are some, however, who are in the fourth category. We just call them the hardened. They're not the strong Christian. They're not the weak but willing. They're not the weak and stubborn. They're, they're the hardened. You know what warnings do for somebody that's hardened? They call for justice from God. A warning like this probably hardened some. Jezebel had been given all kinds of opportunities and she did not, would not, even with spans of time and kindness, repent. This is a call for the justice of God. When you read it, God's character just comes out of it. You're holy. It's like the psalmist when they would sometimes pray, let the arrogant be ashamed, Psalm 119, 78. Let the arrogant be ashamed because they subvert God's people with a lie. Lord, vindicate your holiness and bring it, bring it on. It's a call for justice, this kind of warning. And thereby it upholds God's holiness. It also confirms for us what apostasy looks like. When you look at this letter, it, it, it exposes hardened hearts and shows you what apostasy looks like so that you and I can avoid it. It makes the definition very clear. I, Satan would love for us to, to just dumb down the definition of the seeds of apostasy and real apostasy. He wants us to dumb it down. That's what pragmatism and free grace movements and evangelicalism and anti-any standard and don't strive for holiness, all that kind of licentious behavior in the name of Christian freedom, all that stuff are the seeds of apostasy, if not actual apostasy, and everyone would like to just gloss over it and change the definition of it, smooth it out. No, 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 no. A letter like this defines it clearly. And one last thing it does it tells you who's saved and who isn't in much more vivid colors. It declares the absence of true conversion. Somebody who has that kind of truth given to them and they refuse over and over to repent. When the judgment does fall on them, when God does give them over, whenever that is, it's obvious they don't have regeneration. The lessons in these letters are so rich for us. 
God is kind. He gave her time to repent. He brought warning after warning. But judgment will fall, and yet it will be that those who lead others into, astray, into error and astray will be held doubly responsible. You don't think that comes down on the heads of your elders when we read in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, that, that you are to obey your leaders and submit to them as those who will give an account for your soul? That is serious. James chapter 3, don't let a whole bunch of you rush to become teachers, for teachers will have a stricter judgment. And then what you have here is a God who searches the minds and hearts because he's going to judge deeds, and the deeds will manifest what's in the heart. Yes, if you're a believer, you don't have to fear judgment, but these warnings serve to to crank up your conscience and call you to faithfulness in the power of the Lord because you have a right heart and the power of Christ is there to help you persevere. If we take these letters and their warnings and their insights seriously, we won't end up like Thyatira, winking at blatant sin to be culturally savvy and acceptable. We won't become pragmatic. And the Lord will have a pure church, people who are striving for purity, and His honor will be uplifted and upheld. Well, there's so many wonderful rewards to come. The rewards of holy endurance are what we'll look at next time. Let's bow together. Lord, there are rewards that come to those who persevere to the end. And you do say to this little church, that he who overcomes and keeps your deeds until the end will stand with you in the authority of the kingdom. And you will give us yourself fully all that you've planned. And so we, we come to you and we say, wherever we are, Lord, use these wonderful expressions as warnings to us, as comforts to us, as encouragements, admonishments, challenges, soberings. May we never come to the place where we wink at blatant iniquity. May we never come to the place where we have a pretense of ministry, but we love sin. May we never come to the place where in your kindness we don't repent but harden in stubbornness. May we always know that you're the Lord of your church and you search our minds and hearts, so search us and see if there's any wicked way in us and lead us in the everlasting way. And we ask it for your glory's sake in your church. Amen.